I was sort of like a church kid all my life. I, I went to a Christian college and all kinds of stuff, but I didn't really understand what it was all about. I didn't have that real personal peace and joy inside, but I longed for it. I went on down through my life and we ended up uh, moving to Phoenix. I went to drive a truck for uh, one of the trucking companies here and we heard about Scottsdale Bible Church. When I came here, they found out that I had majored on trombone, so they right away switched me over into a, uh, the church's orchestra, which at that point was only uh, only about 12 or 14 people, you know. And then I began to get closer and closer to finding that personal relationship. I just didn't realize that it, I, I wasn't really where he wanted me to be yet. So he introduced me to diabetic complications. I became diabetic and I picked up what's called a MRSA infection. And it's only one antibiotic that'll do anything to it. And you have to have circulation down there to get that to them. I didn't have adequate circulation. It was eating my feet from the toes and then, and then starting on up. And so they had to do a below the knee amputation. I said to the Lord, I guess if you need a one-legged man, I'm it. He enabled me even then to stop being concerned about it. I came out of the hospital and a guy was standing there outside the front door and he says, uh, what happened to you, buddy? And I said, okay, Lord, here we go. Everywhere I went, somebody would come up and say, well, what happened to you? And I get to talk to them. I get to share my testimony and everything with them and say, now I'm a foot and 10 inch invested in glory. I, I was feeding those guys the morsels of scriptural truth and stuff all the way down through it. Then I found out that I had problems in the other leg and it got infected, started swelling up, and different things like that. So they took the other one off. I began to get attacked, especially within my own mind. You know, who do you think you are? Your life is over. You're not gonna be able to make any difference in anybody's life. And it suddenly occurred to me, I'm not a one-legged man anymore. I'm a defeated man. <laughs> except I'm not defeated because I have the power of the Lord in a way I never had it before. I'm actually probably a dozen times better off now than I was when I had my legs and didn't really have that close relationship that I needed with the Lord. I've been developing the peace and the joy of the Lord more and more every day since. There's nothing like it. You know, you can live above life circumstances. Not gonna matter in eternity that I had one leg or then that I had no legs. What Satan would have used for evil, the Lord used for good. church. That's good. We're off to a good start here. Good morning and welcome to our, our venues and our multi-sites, Cactus Mountain Valley uh, venue chapel across the way. Uh, it's good to all be here together. What an amazing start to the day to hear Doug Nixon's story. Wasn't that incredible? 
Doug's an amazing guy. I've gotten to know him a little bit over the last three years of Winter Wonder, and, and it's just incredible to see. What I was most touched by was the joy that he leads his life with. And so we were talking right before service started as he was playing the orchestra over here today, and I just said, Doug, thank you for your story. And he said, Rustin, it's not what happens to you, it's what you do with it. I think that's a beautiful way for us to start as we talk about steadfastness today, as we talk about the idea of persevering in different places in our lives where we're gonna be challenged. That's just life on earth, right? That's just how it goes. And, and we've got to figure out, what do we do with those things? What do we do when we're challenged? And, and so for me, I, I was very touched by an experience I had over the winter break. I, I went away after Winter Wonder and Christmas Eve. My family and I went uh, over to California. We spent some time with some friends who happened to share a driveway with a pretty prominent professional boxer. And he, he was kind of an incredible guy. And, and as we spent some time together, I got to hear his story. And he gave me permission to share his story. But he said, hey, if you would, just don't use my name. And I said, that's not a problem. He's a very private individual. And I said, that's, that's no big deal. But he started to talk to me. And the first morning I came out, it's a kind of a shared driveway. And there's four houses that all use it. All of our kids are playing together. And there's this guy walking around who's in shape. Let's just say it that way. Okay. <laughs> And so uh, I kind of noticed him, and he, he looked over at one point, and he said, wow, your son's really tall. And I said, well, he didn't get it from me. I'm only 5'10", and he said, homie, I'm 5'6". And I said, got it, it's relative, right? So we kind of laughed a little bit, and then after that interaction, my buddy told me what he did for a living. So I sat there, and I just kind of, the next morning, walked out, and I said, man, I, I heard how you make your living, and he goes, pretty crazy, isn't it? And I said, yes, it's very crazy. And you know, every once in a while you meet a celebrity and you're sitting there and you start talking to them and they kind of act like it's no big deal what they do. And you're like, no, it's a really big deal. And I got a ton of questions. And so we sat there and we talked and he was not like that at all. He was so humble and so grounded and so wonderful. And I got to talk to him and ask him questions about his life for an hour. And he just started talking me through how he'd grown up in a low income neighborhood and how he effectively fought his way out. And I said, you know, what was it like? And, and I Googled him the night before, like a true nerd. And so I, I knew how good he was. And this was an individual who, he didn't just mess around with professional boxing. He'd actually been to the MGM Grand. He'd fought Manny Pacquiao for millions of dollars. So this was someone who had really made it to the pinnacle of his craft. And I said, how do you go from a low-income neighborhood to fighting Manny Pacquiao on Las Vegas Boulevard for millions of dollars? What does the in-between look like? And these were a couple of the quotes he shared with me. He said, Rustin, I've known what I wanted to be since I was 10 years old. He said, the first time I set foot in Las Vegas, I was 25. I looked up at the marquee on the MGM Grand, and I said, someday my face and my name will be up there. And then I did whatever I needed to do every day to make that happen. I went on to ask him more and more questions, and I just said, man, what's it like, you know, just fighting? And he said, being in the ring is the loneliest place in the world. It's just you. And the person who's in there is trying to hurt you. I said, that's incredible. And he said, you know, the reality when you're fighting is that if one of your fights that you're fighting in is for $30,000, if you win, the next one could be for 60, or if you lose, the next one could be for five. And I just went, wow. And he goes, the, the reality is this, either his family was gonna eat or mine was. And I always made sure my family ate. It's like, I want to write a book about your life. <laughs> this is amazing. But what this guy understood and what I want to encourage you in today, and it will tie to what we're talking about is, I want to encourage you to stay in the ring. 
I want to encourage you to understand that it's worth it and why. And, and there's a clarification that's required because so many times I talk to people. I mean, I, I meet with three to five people a day, five days a week. And, and I get to hear everybody's stories and I get, to, I get to hear kind of what they're going through. And so many times I hear Christians craft this idea and it almost sounds like when they're in the ring, they're fighting with Jesus. Like they're going back and forth, sparring with God. And I just don't think that's theologically very accurate. I think the reality and the clarification for us today is that when we're in the ring, it's not Jesus we're fighting with. If Jesus has a place in the ring or in this fight that we're in, it's in our corner, not across from us. The only time we end up fighting with God is when we decide that what he wants for our life isn't best for us. And then you've picked one heck of an enemy who you want to go toe-to-toe with. But the reality is that we have an amazing redeemer, an incredible savior, whose plan is best for us. And we're gonna kind of break that down a little bit today. So without further ado, this is our passage for the day, our main point being stay in the ring. But Second Peter 1, five through six, and we'll read half of six, but it says this. It says, for this reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness. That's our word for today. Now, because we're basically doing seven weeks of word studies back to back, we get to do this really nerdy Greek thing every week, and about 90% of you tune out, and the other 10% of you that are interested in that kind of stick around. So stick with me, everybody, because it's kind of a fun word today. Steadfastness, the word in the original Greek is hippomone. Now, that's fun to say, right? So let's just take a minute and do it together. Everybody say hippomone. Worth the price of admission, wasn't it? That was good stuff. Now, here's what's great. I like digging into this stuff. I'm going to quote a really academic source here called Little Kittle. It's a theological dictionary. But this is how it describes this word. And it's important to clarify some things here. It says, hippomone means standing fast, uh, expectation, or waiting. And it says this. It says, it becomes a prominent virtue in the sense of courageous endurance. I think that's important. As distinct from patience, it has the active significance of energetic if not necessarily successful resistance. And I love this. True hippomone is not motivated by outward public opinion or hope of reward, but inwardly by love of honor. That's really important. Because when we talk about steadfastness in the scriptures, I mean, the reality is we're not far into this thing and I've already defined it. So if the only thing we were going to do today was just define what steadfastness meant in the scriptures back when it was written, we're sort of done and you guys could kind of get to brunch pretty quick. But the reality is that the hardest part about this today is not defining the word. The hardest part about what we'll do today is distinguishing this word from how the world says we should pursue it. That's the real challenge today, to figure out how a cultural understanding of perseverance differs from a biblical understanding of perseverance. And that's really where I wanna dive in today. Cultural perseverance is this. Press on regardless of what the circumstance is, success is the ultimate goal. That's what the world says. If you're gonna need to press on, all you need to know about pressing on is that success is on the other side of it. And then you can do whatever you need to. You can chuck relationships or other people. You can push any meaningful thing aside, go through any obstacle so long as success is on the other side. 
That is a cultural understanding of perseverance. And yet a biblical understanding functions very differently because that is a different end goal in mind. Biblical perseverance is press on in what God has asked me to do regardless of the cost. Closeness with Christ is the ultimate goal. The ultimate goal of the Christian life is to be in close proximity to our Lord. He is the reward of the gospel. We get that twisted sometimes. Christ is the reward of the gospel. It's not necessarily heaven. It's that you get him now and forever. That is the reward of the gospel. And so if we're going to persevere, biblical perseverance requires us to know what God is asking us to do. See, there's a difference there, isn't it? It's not just go be successful because I think you can be, well, in fact, all of us would agree with this. Can you be successful in this world and be a long way away from Christ? Yeah, you sure can. So is it possible to persevere in the wrong things as a believer? That's where we're going today. We're going to find that distinction and we're going to go headlong into it. And for this, three things are required. And the first of these things is faith. Plainly stated, when talking about how we persevere, this really comes down to whether or not you trust that God's plan is best for your life. If you don't trust that God's plan is best for your life, if that is not in place, then you can just know that regardless of what he asks you to do, unless it's fun or comfortable, you're probably not going to do it. Because that's what we're wired for. We are wired to pursue comfort. Our hearts crave it. We have a country that has wrapped us in it. And it is in a lot of ways twisted the heart of the gospel in such a way that we now go, well, I'll know God's plan for my life because I'll be comfortable. Hey, church, I want to blow that balloon up real big today. That's not what we're called to. We're called to closeness with Christ. And at times, you will have comfort, you will have favor, you will have joy, you'll have blessing. But those are not the goal. Those are also not great litmus tests or markers for whether or not we're on the right path. You have to have faith that regardless of what's going on, God's plan is best for your life, even if you go through seasons of discomfort. That is the true marker of where we have to start. You have to trust that his plan is best. And then the second thing that we've got to look at is discernment. Now, discernment is really where the rubber meets the road. You sit back and you're, you're basically asking the question of steadfastness, what do I remain steadfast in? So I got a few examples here, okay? Our jobs. Bunch of us got them. They're a lot of fun, aren't they? We look at our jobs. Now, you may not like your job for a myriad of reasons. And one of two things could be happening in your job. God could be sitting back in your job and he could, he could be saying, all right, I'm going to use your job. I'm going to use the boss that you don't like to craft a new attitude and gratitude in you. And that is far more important than you being comfortable in your job. You gotta trust me and know that my plan is best, but I might use a job, God says, to craft a new attitude and a gratitude in you. Or God may be taking your job and creating a healthy discomfort to show you that it's time to move on. Discernment is the thing that tells us whether we're supposed to press on or move on. You can write that in your notes. I thought that was pretty good. <laughs> move on or press on. We don't know, and you won't know unless you discern what God's plan is for your life. 
But that's the reality. We got to figure that out. Another great example, relationships. Oh, relationships. We are all in them. And in some relationships, you need to change in order to be able to participate in a relationship in a healthy way, right? Have we all experienced this at times? You know what? Parts of me got to die so that I can better serve my spouse or a brother in Christ or a brother in family. That something's got to change in order for me to participate. I got to become less selfish. Or you may be in a relationship where somebody else is choosing not to participate in a healthy way and you need to set a boundary. You will not know whether to press on in that relationship or move on and set a boundary unless you are discerning what God is asking and calling you to do. Now, big qualification, church. I said this, I said this last night. I'll say it again today. I don't want to get a bunch of emails from people going, I heard Pastor Rustin on Sunday and he told me I could get out of my marriage because I was unhappy and the Lord told me to. Don't do that. I didn't say that. All right? We, we supplement this with wise counsel and the, the foundation for everything is not God's internal revelation to us. It's his constant revelation of the word. So that's what we base our lives on. That is the foundation for everything. But we've got to discern what we're doing in some of these relationships and whether or not a boundary or a heart change is required. And you'll know as time goes on, not because you're comfortable, but because God will start to follow your heart along after this. And the, the third one here is this, it's intimacy with Christ. The reality for all of us with intimacy is we've got to know the Lord. You see, it's really hard for us to sit back and try and figure out what's going on if we don't have that intimate relationship with Jesus. This is the role of the Holy Spirit. He is constantly helping us, not just discern, but he's the one continually drawing us to the second uh, person of the Trinity. The third person of the Trinity is on board drawing us back to Christ. That has to happen, and guess what? There's no shortcut for this. Some of you sit back sometimes, and I hear it all the time, I'm kind of just tired of reading my Bible, I'm tired of praying, that's fine. But you gotta figure out a way to get close to God. And sometimes just spending consistent, uh, dedicated time with him, that is the point. Because the reality is, if you don't have an intimate relationship with Jesus, it is hard to discern what is going on, how you're supposed to continue to walk through life, or a process that I thought of this week, this statement might be helpful. It's through intimacy with Christ that we learn to discern his will for our lives, and then in faith, we trust that it's best. That's how this functions, it is that all of these pieces have to be in place. If you short circuit one of them and you go, yeah, that's fine, I'll work on faith, I'll just trust him blindly, but I really don't wanna discern, I'd rather just plow ahead and I'm really over the intimacy thing, you're gonna miss it. You're gonna be a wreck and you're gonna sit back and you're gonna struggle because you're trying to short circuit the process. All of these things have got to be present in order for us to press on and to be steadfast with Christ. Now, if those things are the things that are required, if those are necessary for us to be able to discern what to be steadfast in, there's also a couple of things that need to die. And I'm gonna use a word that about half of you are gonna go, that's a little aggressive, but the things that need to die are idols. 
Idols are not just for the Old Testament church, okay? It's not something that they wrote about way back then and now they're kind of gone. Idols are alive and well in the church today. Let me show you this, okay? The first idol that has to die is a comfort idol. I touched on this a second ago, but I wanna go deep on this. How many of you have ever sat back and kind of gone, um, all right, here's, here's how this works. I'm just, let me, let me, I'm gonna paint a picture actually before I make this statement. I want you to think about your life with me for just a second. And I want you to pretend with me that your life has a throne room in it. And in that throne room is a throne. And one person belongs on the throne of your life. Who might that person be, church? Just Sunday school answer, just say Jesus, okay? Jesus belongs on the throne of your life. And if Jesus is on the throne of your life, here's what's so great about him being the Lord of your life on the throne of your life. Whether things are good, whether things are bad, whether you have circumstances like Doug's or any myriad of difficult things that you have to deal with, Jesus can be served because he works all things for the good of those who love him, right? And so the reality is if Christ is on your throne, whether you're going through a really difficult season or a really awesome season, Jesus is served. He can still draw you closer and closer to him regardless of circumstance. And you remain steadfast with him regardless of what's going on. That's what happens if Jesus is on your throne. But if comfort is on your throne, the second things get tough, it runs for the hills. How many of you have ever had this conversation? I wanna prove to you that comfort is alive and well in our lives. How many of you ever sat there and gone, man, the second I get my marriage figured out, the kids act up. The second I get them figured out, it's the finances. If it's not the finances, it's the job. If it's not the job, it's the kid's school. If it's not the school, then our dog died. It's the, and you just keep going on and on and on. And all you're trying to do is when do I get to the place in my life when everything is functioning really well? That's not, that's not anything other than your comfort idol screaming worship me. That's what's talking when you have that conversation with yourself. You're sitting back and just going, when do I get to just be comfortable? When do I get to stop being challenged? Well, guess what? Challenge equals change. That's how we change, because we're challenged. And if you're sitting there trying to keep all the plates spinning at the right speed and you're not accepting that at times things are gonna go down and you're gonna have to tend to them in a tender and caring way, your comfort idol is currently on your throne. And the second things start to go haywire in your marriage and your finances and your job or with your kids, that comfort idol turns his back and says, you can't worship me anymore and now you're alone. That thing's got to come off the throne of your life and Christ needs to go back to his rightful place so that in even the worst of circumstances, even in circumstances like Doug's, you can say, so long as the Lord is served, so long as I'm being drawn closer to him, the circumstances are irrelevant and I will do with it what you will. I love that phrase that Doug said. What did he say? All right, Lord, here we go. It's an adventure with the Lord, regardless of circumstance. The second idol that has to die for us today is success. I just said it a minute ago. Can you be successful in the world and completely void of a great relationship with Christ? You can. And here's the thing about the success idol. You won't cringe at the sight of pain if you're worshiping success. You won't cringe at the sight of difficulty. But you will run 100 miles in the wrong direction. You will absolutely sprint just forever after a direction that's not good for you. That's what the success idol will do to you. 
because it is all of the things that we long for. It's through the success idol that you see a man or a woman sitting in the corner office having achieved absolutely everything that they ever wanted to achieve in their job and they are sitting there scared and alone and going, I never wanted my life to be like this. Oh, what are you talking about? You have everything. You have everything you ever wanted. You achieved it all. And do you know why? Because success failed them where Christ would have satiated them. They're hungry for something authentic. They're actually hungry for something they can't achieve. They want to climb a mountain only to find that it was unclimbable and have the Lord say, I'm bigger than your wildest dreams. A success idol will continue to encourage you. And here's the thing about the success idol. When things are hard, your success idol screams, well done, keep it up. When things are difficult, your success idol will tell you, yeah, just keep going. Bump that treadmill that you're sprinting on up a few more miles per hour. If you have a success idol in your life, you might, just like I said, you might get out of your car in your driveway and you might close the door and you might take just a deep breath for a second and go, I never wanted my life to be like this. If that's your experience, you have a success idol in your life. And in order to know what to remain steadfast in, that will have to go away and Christ will have to be put back in his rightful place as the Lord of your life. Now, I have a lengthy conclusion today, but what I want to do is I want to look at four biblical characters. In my opinion, they're the heavyweights of the steadfastness game in the scriptures. And the first one of these, and I just love them because I think at times we can kind of glaze over. You know, you can read somebody's story in the Bible in like 15 minutes, and so you kind of glaze over the fact that this was a lifetime. And the first one I want to talk about is Joseph. Man, I love this guy. I really do. He's an incredible picture of steadfastness, but this is kind of the short story on his life. For some of you who haven't read Joseph's story, it's really pretty incredible. He, uh, he gets a little loose-lipped with some dreams as kind of a kid, and he kind of starts talking about how at some point he gets a prophetic dream, and he starts telling his brothers, you know, this is how this thing's going to turn out. You're all going to end up worshiping me. You're all going to end up serving me. You're all bowing down to me. And, and surprisingly, this wasn't received well by his brothers. It, it was a bit of a shock to me as well. But they, they respond so poorly, they actually beat him uh, just mercilessly and throw him in a pit. They, they kind of back up from that particular course of action just in time to pull him out of the pit and sell him into slavery, okay? He goes from slavery into Potiphar's house. Now, here's the thing about Joseph. God has given this guy just the Midas touch. Anything he touches just flourishes, so he's sitting there and he's in Potiphar's house and things are going really well. Potiphar's house is just going nuts. It's going gangbusters because Joseph is on top of this whole thing. And then, then rolls in Potiphar's wife. We'll call her morally casual. <laughs> Probably the best way to define her. And so she's kind of, you know, makes a really inappropriate gesture towards Joseph. He like doesn't he flees leaving his clothes behind as as that whole deal goes and then he goes to prison where yet again he starts to rise through the ranks i mean he is the essence of the person who who says if you throw me to the wolves i'll come back leading the pack like nothing can keep this guy down so he rises to the top of that he interprets dreams he ends up long story short as the second in command to egypt 
He has remained steadfast through everything. And, and, and actually, he comes to a point where his brothers who have beaten and thrown him into slavery need, uh, need resources because there's a famine that's going on that the Lord has actually prepared Egypt for because of Joseph and his steadfastness. And now his brothers gain an audience in front of him, at which point he reveals his identity and forgives them. This tear-filled exchange. And the entire, what would become the nation of Israel is saved through one man's steadfastness. That's what God can do with just one person who's steadfast. Think about that for a second. But what I want to use Joseph's story to show you is this. When the Lord asks us to remain steadfast, he doesn't just go, I need you to go do this for me, now do it, and check back in when it's a really pretty story that I can use. That's not the Lord. The Lord does this, and most of you, you may not have read this detail into the story if you haven't read it, but this is how cool the Lord is when we're steadfast. Joseph, in rising through the ranks, brings a, a wife on as he's the second in command in Egypt, and he names his first child Manasseh. Manasseh means the Lord makes me to forget. He names his second child Ephraim. The Lord makes me fruitful. You see, while the Lord is in Joseph's corner, asking him to remain steadfast and to press on and to push into difficult things, he's also restoring him. God didn't forget about Joseph. He tended to his every need. He started going, press on, do the Potiphar's house thing, and I'm going to start healing you as only I can do, tending to your internal hurts and wounds and fears and loneliness in a foreign land, in captivity, I will heal you. I will make you to forget the hurt of your past, and I will make you fruitful in a land like you have never imagined. That's what the Lord does with his kids when they are steadfast. If you are in a season where you are required to be steadfast right now, you're not just being asked to press on. You're not just being asked to create a cool story that somebody else can tell about your life. You are being healed and restored in ways that you can't even see. That's what the Lord does with the steadfast. That's what the Lord does with those who persevere. Esther. We love Esther, right? Esther wins the most twisted version of The Bachelor that has ever been created. Okay? They take these girls, they cart them off into captivity, and they go through this year-long process of, I don't know, like soaking them in olive oil or whatever they did to them. And then it comes, they put them all before the king, and then she gets the rose, and she gets to kind of move on. So she becomes the queen. And not just to any king, because he wasn't a super level guy, he actually had his, li his last wife killed for mouthing off. So this is not a cool individual who she's now kind of linked to, and she certainly didn't get to choose this. So as she's sitting there, and she's kind of now in this somewhat captive but like honoring position, her people, as they're called, the Jews, are in trouble. And Esther has a moment where she has to make a choice, a very difficult choice. And so with the entire nation, again, of Israel on the line, she steps in and exposes her identity. She says to the king, the people who you are about to go out to persecute and to decimate, they are mine. So if you are going to kill them, also kill me. Because I lie with them. 
Completely overwhelmed, the king comes back. He writes the wrong and actually in one of the great twists of irony kills the kind of the main antagonist in the story on the very gallows that he had made for his sworn enemy. And the nation was saved through the steadfastness of one godly woman. That's a powerful story. And meanwhile, the Lord cared for Esther. I think about Peter. You know, we love to pick on Peter as pastors. We really do. It's so easy because he just made so many mistakes. And the reality is for most of us, we pick on Peter because we identify with Peter, right? We all can see ourselves in Peter and his story. But the, the reality is Peter is really the iron-jawed believer of the Bible. You can hit this guy as hard as you want and he will get back up. That's really what Peter's known for. You look at him, he almost drowns and Christ like pulls him up out of the water. Not long after that, he, he rebukes Peter in a really interesting way. Remember, he looks at him and he says, Satan, get behind me. Anybody had that said to them recently? <laughs> no? Okay. That was just Peter, huh? He goes from there. He denies Christ in the moment where Christ needs him the most. And then not but a couple chapters later, we see Peter before the Lord, after denying him, we see Peter before the Lord. And what's, what's Christ saying to him? Peter, feed my lambs. Peter, feed my sheep. Peter, feed my lambs. Peter came back. After Christ dies, we go to Galatians. Peter has lapsed in to yet another super legalistic, super religious form Paul has written and said, there is no more Jew, there is no more Gentile. You are now one man unified in Christ. And yet, here comes Peter. Nope, Jews over there, Gentiles over there. I'm only going to sit with you guys because he was afraid of the Judaizers, a group who were trying to be legalistic and trying to maintain Jewish practice even though Christ had obliterated the law and fulfilled it in his personhood. And Peter's getting kind of all messed up in that again. And Paul comes in and just knocks his jaw loose again. Goes, uh-uh, knock it off. And Peter comes back. Most of you, many of you may not have read this, but when Peter dies, he dies in a very interesting way. He's standing there in, in front of persecution yet again. And he comes in and they're persecuting him. And they say, listen, here's what you can do. If you recant, if you deny him, then you're okay. We'll let you live. And yet Peter has come to a place in his life where he realizes that without Christ, there is no life. Why would I deny him? Why would I deny the very life source in order to go on? It would be like giving up oxygen so that I can live. There's no point. I would be dead. Peter comes to a place of that recognition. So what Peter does is when they ask him to recant, he goes, no, I claim him. And not only that, but I'm not... I'm not willing, I'm not worthy to be crucified as my Savior was crucified. Crucify me upside down. He gets it. It took him a long time, but Peter was steadfast. He persevered. He kept coming back. Remember, our definition for perseverance, for hippomone, is not what? It's resilient, but not always successful. Peter was not always successful, but he was resilient. And in the end of the day, it won out, and he was sanctified. He overcame his biggest stronghold, which was fear of man. Peter was terrified of what others thought of him, and he overcame it, and he finally looked at a group of men and said, enough is enough, take my life. I don't need it anymore. It's an amazing story of steadfastness. And finally, the hero of our faith, 
the one whose steadfastness we strive after, Christ. How many times was Christ tested and yet was steadfast? Every time. He never failed us. He never will. His steadfastness is legendary. He's the hero. He's the hope giver, the redeemer, the restorer, the one we go after. I think about the desert. 40 days alone and starving. The enemy comes to him, offers him everything from food to power to worship, and he was steadfast. I think about the disciples. I think about how incredibly patient he was with them. He cared for them as he trained them. He was always caring for them. Even when they abandoned him, he was steadfast. I think about the Garden of Gethsemane. I think about as the full enormity of what was about to take place is revealed to him. He hears the words that nobody wants to hear from the Father. No. Will this cup pass from me? No. I think about what that exchange meant. What it meant was, son, in order for us to have them, this is what's required. I think about how tough that must have been to hear. Sometimes we get it twisted. We sort of act like God the Father had to spank Jesus in order for us to, to kind of have it. It's, it's so different than that. The reality was man gave himself over to the sworn enemy of God, the one who had stood on the mountain and claimed himself as worthy of worship in the sight of God. And in the garden, we kind of gave ourselves to him in sin. And in order, not by force, but for, for Jesus to come down and to have us back, he said, I will. And it's in the garden that he realizes what that's going to require. And in the midst of that moment, he hears, no, this can't pass. And he chooses to press on. In the midst of the horror of what was about to take place, separation, anguish, physical, spiritual, relational torment, he was steadfast. I think about the cross. I think about how Jesus hung there, tormented. I think about how much pain he was in. I think about this. I think about Matthew 26. It says this. Uh, Peter, as we, as, as we know, just very eager, comes in with a sword and takes an ear off right as Jesus is being arrested. Jesus heals him, but then Jesus says this, and it really informs where we're going. He says, do you, do you think I cannot call on my Father, and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? But that, how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen this way? Think about the cross now. Think about him hanging there in the midst of everything that's going on. Now, this is not biblical. I can't support this with anything. This is my own little mental picture. If it encourages you, great. But I think about those legions of angels, ready and waiting, watching the most gross injustice that will ever take place, the perfect lamb slaughtered by those he came to save, and those legions of angels going, just give me the word. Because my, my Lord is down there, the one who created me, the perfect one who's never done a wrong thing in his life. Just give me the word. This has to stop. And I think about Jesus hanging there going, no, I want to have them. I want them back. I want them back. And he was steadfast. 
The reality was he was steadfast for you. For you. He was steadfast for you and for you. For those of you in the the venue, at Cactus Mountain Valley in the chapel, he was steadfast for you. We're going to go to the communion table and we're going to partake of this beautiful steadfastness. We're going to come together and we're going to spend just a few minutes kind of basking in this idea of what it means to really stay in the ring with the one who was most steadfast because he's in our corner. You forget sometimes he kind of has the market cornered on what it means to stay in the ring. He knows more about it than you possibly could. And what I want to encourage you today is to go just a little deeper. I could sit up here right now and say, listen, it will be best for your life if you just remain steadfast with Jesus. And I wouldn't be lying to you. It will be. Your life will turn out best if you follow him. But I'd like to take you to a slightly deeper and I think more holy and pure motivation. It's this. What if we got back to obedience as a response to something beautiful? Instead of playing self-help Christianity, well, this is best for me. It makes a lot of sense. What if we got back to He stood there and hung there in the midst of that moment and said, no, 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 guys, don't come down. I want them back. What if our hearts were so broken and so humbled by that picture, by the beauty of the cross, that we responded by saying, I will endure to have you. That's really my final submission to you today. It's at the bottom of your notes. It's already filled out. But the reality is, He was steadfast to have you. Will you remain steadfast to have him? Let me pray for us. Lord, we're gonna come to the communion table right now. We're gonna sit back and and to really focus as we worship on what it means for us to remain steadfast. We're gonna focus on what you did in your steadfastness. Lord, my prayer right now, Holy Spirit, will you stir each and every one of our hearts in little ways where we may not have been stirred before as we come into this recognition of what it is that you have done for us. As the Holy Spirit and the Father watched as the Son gave himself to have us, the ones who walked away, the ones who pinned him there, And that this moment would stir us deeply. And in response, we would say, yes, of course, I'll be steadfast. I will say, here we go, Lord. I'm on this adventure with you. Let's keep going. But in these moments that we would sit back and just say, yes, we'll do anything to have you. Because you did everything to have us. Lord, we just take this time. Holy Spirit, will you stir our hearts in a sweet way? Amen.